Good morning. We'll try one more time. Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4. Now, last week we studied chapter 3, and we looked at the account of Peter and John entering the temple and God using them to heal a crippled beggar at the gate called Beautiful. We looked at the entirety of that account, but now we see in chapter 4 the aftermath. And by that I mean... Anytime God does a miraculous work, you can count on the devil to try to thwart that work. In fact, one of the ways that I know that God is working is I also see the devil working. Wherever God is working in the hearts of his people and those that come to know him, you can count on the fact that the devil and the forces of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places, is trying its best to stop the work of God. Now, I just want to say right up front, you can't stop the work of God. Now, why God allows the devil to get anything at all happening in, in, in conflict against the work that God is doing, I don't know. But I trust him in all things, and I know that he's sovereign. One of the things I do know is that God allows spiritual wickedness in high places to work to prove us, to test us, to strengthen us. I've learned more from my mistakes than I have from things I've gotten right. And I've learned a lot over the years that I've been on this planet uh, from trying to do something against opposition. Opposition is used by God to strengthen his church. I think we can all agree right now, God is really strengthening his church. We have quite a bit of opposition. So this morning, as we look at chapter 4, the message really has to do with us being the kind of people that honor God in all things. We need to understand that God is calling us to stand up against the opposition of this world and the devil and the spiritual forces of evil and stand for him. And today's study will help us and encourage us to do that very thing, to stand. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you weak and in need of your strengthening. Oh, so many of us have listened to the voices of the world and even spiritual wickedness in high places, we've allowed those voices to make us fearful and afraid. We've allowed the voices of the world and those voices contrary to God's will and his word and his way to convince us sometimes to do things or to not do things according to your will. Really, to not do the things you've called us to do. And so, Lord, what we want to do today is we want to ask for strengthening by the power of your spirit, to be the kind of people that honor you, even in the face of persecution, opposition, and possibly even death. For we're not playing games here. We've been called to reach a world with a testimony that is going to be opposed, but is going to be proven by the spirit's power in and through our lives, through difficulties, trials, temptations, tribulations, and persecution. 
Lord, strengthen us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to see that Peter and John are arrested. We've seen now over the last year or so that as men and women of God have stood up for God's word and what God's word says, that in certain countries, and dare I say even here, pastors and leaders, men and women, have been arrested for doing the very thing that God has told them to do. Now let me also say that some people have been arrested for doing what they thought was the right thing to do. That's not the same thing. I want to make a distinction because we do have freedoms in our country and you may choose uh, based on conscience or based on what you believe to be your rights under the Constitution to stand up for what you believe. And I commend you. I stand with you. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the Word of God and what the Word of God tells us to do and how we must submit to God above all other authority. You've got to be careful with that doesn't give you a license to just disobey authority. It's all according to God's word. Now, we read in verses 1 through 3 these interesting words. It says here that the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Now, I've often thought that it would be a very distressing thing to be preaching the gospel out on the streets and be arrested for doing it, but it happens all the time in our world. Maybe it doesn't happen all the time here. It has happened here over the last year especially. It's happened in Canada most recently, and and it's happened throughout the world, but it happens all the time in countries where freedom is not a guaranteed right. But you'll note that, and I've said this recently, I don't believe, you can disagree with me, but I don't believe God uses cowards. I don't. God will work in the life of a coward, but God uses men and women who are bold, who ask for God's boldness to do God's will. Paul prayed for God's boldness. If Paul could pray for boldness, you and I can as well. He was a very bold man. But here are the priests, the captain of the temple guard, that's head of security, if you will, and the Sadducees were disturbed. Now, what were they disturbed by? Peter and John's words. We're entering a realm in our culture today where people are disturbed by our words. If they don't like what you're saying, it doesn't matter whether it's true, if they don't like what you're saying, they just label it hate speech, racism, or they just say something, you know, is, is a conspiracy. And, and, and we're, we're, well, they're not silencing us. Amen. Who's silencing us? No one's silencing us. But they're trying to. Because the forces of darkness don't want you to preach the gospel. Again, this is not a political message. I'm not talking about vaccines. I'm not talking about gun rights. I'm talking about your right to worship God. And the thing is, and believe God's word, when you stand up for God and his word, you can expect that people are going to be disturbed. Well, they're disturbed already. But they're going to be disturbed by what you say. You don't say that to disturb them, but they're not going to like what you say. If you're a Christian who's trying to be liked, you're in the wrong business. We are called to preach the truth, uncompromised. Now, these temple priests... 
They're confronting Peter and John because why? They were teaching. They didn't like that they were teaching. But most especially, the thing that really ruffled their feathers was what they were teaching. They were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Now, wouldn't you uh, understand that all these individuals had to do was produce a body and the whole message would have collapsed under its own weight? And I'm sure it infuriated them that no matter what they did, they couldn't find the body of Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because he is risen. And that you know. So they must have been very frustrated. But remember, the temple priests and the Sadducees, they were the political establishment in Jerusalem. They were in charge. They were the men also who were directly responsible for handing Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. And remember this, and maybe you've forgotten, that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Any resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They ultimately didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They were materialists. So you can imagine how infuriated they were when Peter and John were preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, spiritual things that they simply were offended by. Didn't stop Peter and John from doing it. But they took Peter and John into custody. They kept them overnight in order to question them the next day. They would have been questioned immediately, but it was later in the day. What were they hoping to do? Well, they were hoping to stop any more Jews from joining the over 3,000 believers in Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And they feared that their movement, that is the Christian movement, would incite a response from Rome, their allies, for they were collaborators, and would threaten their financial and material interests. They wanted the status quo. They were the swamp. They didn't want anything to change. And they didn't want these individuals to come in, overturn the apple cart, and cause problems for them and their business interests. Plus, they were offended by their theology. So what's the simplest and easiest thing to do? Well, Twitter didn't exist at that time. Facebook and Instagram weren't a thing. So they had to figure out another way to silence these individuals. And the easiest thing to do was just arrest them, threaten them, try to intimidate them. The funny thing is, though, the Jews really were sticklers for following the law. So they're going to try to use the law against these men to stop them and to silence them. So what happens? Well, Peter and John, we learn in verse 4, had had an, an incredible impact. God had used them to have an impact on Jerusalem on this day. Because it says in verse 4, But many who heard the message believed. And the number of men grew to about 5,000. Brothers and sisters, stop a moment and ask yourself the question, does opposition ever thwart the work of God? No. In fact, I'm going to say this. I believe that the opposition we're experiencing in our culture today is only strengthening the church. I know it's emptied the church, but that may be a good thing. It's closed a number of churches that needed to close. And it's caused a a few Christians who really were playing games to just hide at home. And, and, you know, I'm going to say this, but, you know, and and I'm not going to be popular for saying this. There are some people in our congregation, because that's all that concerns me at the moment, who can't be with us. 
We have members of our staff who are staying home because they were sick. Some tested positive. And you know what? They're fine and they're getting better and they'll be back when it's safe for them to be back. And listen, if you're not feeling well, we ask you take a week to 10 days and stay home just to be careful. Of course. But there are also some people who may never be able to come back because they're dealing with a chronic illness or they're elderly, and, 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 and listen, if you think there's ever going to come a time where our government's going to say it's perfectly safe to go outside, don't bet on it. I hope it happens, but I don't guarantee it will. And so sadly, there may be some people who we never see again until we enter into glory. And that breaks my heart. It's a small number of people. I've kind of calculated it in my head. I figured it's about 5 to 10% of our congregation from over a year ago who we haven't seen except on rare occasions, who for health reasons aren't coming and probably shouldn't. I'm not going to make that decision for them. Because there's some of you who have decided, you know what, I'm okay with that. But there's a percentage of people, Christians, in our church, and I'm not calling out anybody and I'm not judging anybody by name. I have a list of names here, but I won't read it. I'm kidding. (laughs) Just wanted to see some people sweat. Probably people online sweating, not so much here. That are using COVID as an excuse to not worship God? I can't answer that question for you. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you guys are here. But I know people listen online. And listen, we love you. We miss you. You may need to stay home. Only you can answer this question. Am I staying away because God has called me to stay away? Or am I using COVID and other things as an excuse not to be where God has called me to be? That's between you and the Lord. You're not going to get a phone call from me. But I'm going to tell you something. There are a lot of people who will never enter a church again because they really didn't want to be there. And COVID was a convenient excuse to stay away. Hey, listen, why am I mentioning it this way? Because opposition never hurts the church. How can you say that, Pastor? What has it done in China? It's only strengthened the church. What has it done in Iran? It's only strengthened the church. In fact, there really wasn't a church there until the Islamic Revolution. And then now this church, underground church, is supposed to be, I haven't been there, but the fastest growing underground church in the world. See, we got to get out of this thinking, oh my gosh, we lost the election. Oh, is it falling apart? The sky is falling. The sky is falling. No, God's Holy Spirit is falling upon his church. And we have all we need in Christ. I'm here to encourage you today. We're here to be encouraged in God's word. We're not on defense. We're on offense. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So, amen. So what exactly are we worried about? Well, you know what? When I read this sentence in verse (laughs) 4, but many who heard the message believed and and the number of men grew to about 5,000, that only tells me one thing. Bring it on. Because if God allows the opposition of spiritual wickedness, who am I to say he shouldn't? And if every time in human history the church has been attacked and persecuted, it's grown, hasn't that been exactly what we've been praying for these last many years? Revival in the church? Listen, for those of you who 
are here today, this message is not for you. For those who are listening online, who are on the line, and they know they need to be here, but they're not, please come back and be where God has called you to be. For those of you who know you shouldn't be here, we pray for you, we miss you, and we hope that soon you'll be able to join us as well. All right, let's move on. Today's about boldness. Well, the Sanhedrin, they brought Peter and John before them for questioning in order to silence them. The whole point is to silence them. Look at verses 5 through 7. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. Now, here's the, the question. Understand, it's very important that you understand why they asked this question. The question is, by what power or what name did you do this? Now notice, they're not saying, did you hear heal a crippled beggar? They're not saying, how did it feel when you saw the crippled beggar healed? They're trying to catch them in a legal quandary. They're trying to trap them with this question. What power or name? By what power or name did you do this? They're not denying that it was done. Just how did you do this and in what name did you do this? This is a legal trap. By the way, I don't think I need to tell you, when people ask you questions, you're best to say none of your business. Okay, Unless they ask you about the hope you have in Christ, then it, then it definitely want to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. But if people start asking you questions, have you been vaccinated? Listen, being vaccinated has nothing to do with today's message, but just the point. Listen, if you've been vaccinated, that's a very personal question. But why do people feel it's okay to ask me that question? That's my decision to do what I want to do, right? Then, they, then if you happen to tell them, well, no, I'm not comfortable getting vaccinated, which, again, is a personal decision. No judgment on anybody else, right? If you happen to answer that question, then they say, well, you know you need to. Real, real, oh, okay. Then they start trying to tell you what to do. So then they'll say this, you know you're not going to be able to fly or go to a concert. I said, yes, I am. When they ask me the question, I'm just going to say, no, no, I identify as vaccinated. <laughs> that seems to work for everything else. So I'm having a little fun today. Because we need to have fun. But if you've been vaccinated or you're getting vaccinated, that's a very personal question. I just don't appreciate that everyone feels they can ask me that question. Okay. Now, when you're asked a question, it almost always is a leading question designed to entrap you in your words. What did Jesus do? He almost never answered those types of questions. And if he did, he was so careful, he turned it around on them. And unless you have Jesus' wisdom or God gives you the wisdom by the Spirit, you might be best to do what the book of Proverbs tells us, that even a fool is wise when he does what? Keeps his mouth shut. But you know what I find interesting? Well, have I read this whole thing here? Yes, I have, all the way through verse 7. You know, the, the elders of the Sanhedrin, they're the 70 men that ruled over the people of Israel from Jerusalem. These rulers... They were those that presided over the Sanhedrin, the inner circle, if you will. Then you have the Sadducees or the chief priests, which we've talked about, very wealthy and powerful Roman collaborators. But then you have the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. They were those that were crying out for national deliverance from Rome. These were the political parties, very different, but united in one thing. They all wanted to have power. 
like I said, really the swamp. So the high priest's family are mentioned because they were the leaders of the corrupt priesthood in Jerusalem. They're mentioned by name, which I find interesting. Now, a little background. I'll go through this briefly. I've mentioned it before. The high priesthood rightly belonged to the descendants of Aaron under the law. But it's interesting how they bent the law to change the rules because they were supposed to be descendants of Aaron who held their position for life. But under the Greek and the Roman occupations, the high priesthood was sold to the highest bidder, and they had a lot of money, so they bought their positions. Now, Annas, who's mentioned there, had been appointed high priest uh, by Quirinius, governor of Syria in 78, and, excuse me, 7 AD. He was deposed by Valerius Gratus in 15 AD for political reasons, but he continued to wield power over the priesthood by using his family members as proxies. So he was still the power behind the throne, if you will. Five of his sons and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, held the position in almost unbroken succession. Really, truly a swamp. Caiaphas, who we've mentioned, became high priest in 18 AD, but Annas is still the power, right? So they work together, they control things, and uh, this man Caiaphas, you'll remember from the Gospels, had succeeded in convincing the Sanhedrin to conspire to put Jesus to death. That's who's in this meeting that's who's doing the, the grilling of Peter and John. He had proposed that killing Jesus would ensure they maintained their positions of power. He thought it was a good thing. Sacrifice this guy and we'll maintain our power. That's what Caiaphas said. He rationalized that Jesus' death was the best possible solution for the Jewish people. But even God spoke through that because we find out, as the Gospels teach us, that He didn't realize he was telling the truth, prophesying. It actually was the best possible thing for Israel for Jesus to die on the cross, but not in the way that Caiaphas thought. Well, he had Jesus accused of blasphemy, sentenced him to death, and that's on Caiaphas. But the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas belonged to that corrupt Sadducean aristocracy most threatened by Peter and John. They were arrogant, astute, ambitious, and enormously wealthy. They were well-known for their crooked business practices within the temple precinct. That's what Peter and John are dealing with. So, they ask this question. They question the power or name by which they had healed the crippled beggar. These were the same men that Peter ran away from during Jesus' trial. And they could not deny that Peter and John had performed this miracle. But they had questions, one in particular attempting to legally entrap them in a leading question. Now, I'm not going to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, you can put someone to death if they claim to do something miraculous or give a prophecy, but not in the name of Jehovah God. So if you did something miraculous and you were questioned, according to Deuteronomy 13, and you said, well, I did it by... and you mentioned anyone else other than Jehovah, they were legally required and obligated to put you to death. That's why they asked the question. So what Peter wisely should have done is said nothing, but you know that's not what he did. Peter's not good at just saying nothing. But something was different about Peter this time, because when he opened his mouth, the Spirit spoke. Can I hear an amen? Look at verse 8. Then Peter, notice we're told, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you, 
and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Woo! Peter went there. He was careful, but he's filled with the Spirit. He spoke the truth to power. The truth of the gospel to those that hated him and wanted to put him to death were trying to put him to death. Remember, he had been intimidated by the Sanhedrin in the past, but now he's filled with the Spirit. Peter boldly proclaimed that the man had been healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, the thing about that is, he's the Son of God, amen? So he's not breaking the law, but if they decide that Jesus isn't the Son of God, they could make a case against Peter. One little problem, the man was healed, and they didn't fake the miracle. So they're in a quandary, so what they're really trying to do is intimidate. And by the way, this is why I mentioned some of the things I mentioned before. Don't let anyone intimidate you. Don't let anyone intimidate you. You know what's sad? Christians, churchgoers, have lined up around the block to be intimidated by social media by the government, by others, by the media. What is going on here? Well, I think what's going on is we're being opposed and God is purging his church of all those who really aren't members. That's what I got to come to the conclusion. You know, I'm not judging anyone, but I'll tell you what, if you're letting other people tell you what to do in terms of your relationship with God, when they hand out the mark of the beast, what's going to stop you from taking that? It's got to be your commitment to God and your willingness to to die for his name, right? You know, there have been some heroes during this last year who've stood up and said, we're called to worship God. God's word tells us to worship, and we're going to worship. And, you know, we've been open, gosh, it's about 10 weeks after. But we actually never turned anyone away, to to be truthful. The door was always open, even when we had just 10 to 15 people here doing the recording, when we didn't know what was happening. But then shortly after that, we opened up, we were outside, we were inside. We, we, we haven't, you know, other than snow, we haven't canceled any services. Because we're not going to let anyone else dictate the terms of our relationship with God. We're not going to let anyone intimidate us and tell us we can't worship God. Now, we've taken precautions, and over time we've realized that, you know, some things are silly, and some things make sense. I think the thing that makes the most sense is staying home if you're sick. But what we know is non-negotiable is gathering together as God's church to worship him. That's simply not negotiable. So don't allow yourself to be intimidated. Peter certainly didn't. As we've read there, and uh, we we look back at the text here in verses 9 through 10, he's filled with the Spirit, and he boldly proclaims, this man had been healed in the name of Jesus. And he questioned their reason for, for, for questioning God's act of kindness to a cripple. What's your problem? You're disappointed that this cripple was healed? It's a good argument. And he unapologetically explained to them the truth of how this man had been healed. See, the man had been healed by the name of Jesus, whom they crucified. They had killed Jesus, but God had raised him from the dead. And again, that's a statement. That's a bold statement. 
But all the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin had to do was say, he didn't. We have the body right here. They couldn't do it. Imagine how frustrated they must have been. Well, that's how you feel when you stand up against God. You're going to be frustrated. And then Peter quoted Psalm 118, verse 22, as a prediction of their rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah. Uh, We read it already. The stone you build is rejected, which has become the capstone. He is the stone. You build is rejected, which has become the capstone. I taught this when we were in Psalm 118. I actually just taught it recently on Wednesday nights uh, when we were in uh, 1 Peter. So there's, uh, there's a lot I could say about this, but briefly sum it up as this. That verse reflects back on a legend, the story of the temple cornerstone, which may be true, may not be true, but the scripture is true, saying that Christ would be rejected. Now, Peter's inspired by God as he quotes this verse, mentions the capstone of the cornerstone. It's interesting, when I was coming in today in the rain, I noticed, and you know, I've seen it before, but it, because this was on my heart, I noticed there's a cornerstone over here with 1956 on it when the building was built, right? So I saw that cornerstone, and I thought about this. That's, that's the cornerstone, that's the capstone. It's a significant stone, let's put it that way, right? And, and so that's what we're talking about. It's a familiar picture of the coming Messiah, and essentially the stone cutters would cut the stones away from the Temple Mount, number the stones, send them up to the Temple Mount, where the builders would assemble the temple like a puzzle, and uh, they received the stone one day. This is what the, the legend says. Again, it's not, that part isn't scriptural, but we believe it probably is true. It's mentioned throughout scripture. So basically, they received this stone, didn't make sense, didn't, didn't look like a stone that they could use. So they rejected it, put it aside, continued to build, and then got to the point where they needed that stone, communicated with the stone cutters and said, hey, where's stone number 45 or the capstone? And they said, well, we sent that to you months ago. No, no, it's not here. And when they looked around, they realized they had rejected the chief cornerstone. And so that's a symbol of of, of how they treated Jesus Christ. By the way, that psalm, Psalm 118, is the same psalm that they sung, that multitudes sang, as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. In fact, Jesus quoted from that psalm to warn the Jews of his day, and making it clear that God would choose the Gentiles after they rejected him. And Peter quoted this here to warn the Jews after Christ's resurrection. They had rejected their Messiah. That's the point. Paul later quoted Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 to warn the Jews of his day, talking about this cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. I mean, Jesus was a stumbling block for the Jews. And they rejected him in the same way that they had rejected God in the past. So he's pleading with them not to continue to reject Jesus Christ. They have a choice to make. They, they had a choice to make. Now, Peter later in 1 Peter chapter 2, again, not going to go into it in detail, he later connected all these scriptures when writing to the early church to make it clear that Jesus was that living stone. Jesus is the rock. And each of us make a choice to believe or not to believe in Jesus Christ. He is the precious cornerstone prophesied by Isaiah. He's the rejected cornerstone prophesied by the psalmist. He's the stone of stumbling prophesied by Isaiah. God destined Christ to be the chief cornerstone, and he destined those that reject Christ to be rejected by Christ. So do you understand what he's done? He said, this is the truth, you have a choice. Say that with me. This is the truth, you have a choice. That's what we're aiming to do when we share the gospel. This is the truth. You have a choice. We don't tell people what to do, unlike those that oppose the gospel. We share with people the truth 
and pray for them to do the right thing. That's a very important approach. Uh, The quote-unquote church over the centuries has gotten into this idea of an inquisition or purity tests or causing people to have to believe or be put to death. Listen, that that would be just as bad. That is the, the enemy. That is the devil. That happened when the devil joined the church and took it over. But we're not like that. We share the truth and we give people a choice. So Peter proclaimed to the Sanhedrin that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation for all mankind. There is no other name that can save you from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death. So do you want to be saved? Those who are without Christ are lost. They're condemned to hell for all eternity. We need to give them the truth or they can't get saved, but they still won't be saved unless they want to be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Okay, so that we know. And that's what Peter did. Filled with the Spirit, told the truth, gave them a choice. Told the truth, gave them a choice. Well, we get to this last section. And I love this because this really strengthens my resolve to preach the gospel and to worship God publicly. Because the Sanhedrin attempted now to silence Peter and John, not according to the law. They failed in that argument. Now it's political intimidation. Now it's, forget what the law says, we'll boycott you. Forget what the law says, because after all, what's law and order? After all, forget what the law says. We're just going to call you mean names. We're going to say all manner of evil against you until you just shut up and go away. Listen, don't shut up and don't go away. Don't be intimidated by those that oppose the gospel. Again, I'm talking specifically about worshiping God, sharing the gospel, preaching the word of God. I'm not talking about the Constitution. That's a totally different subject. I'm just saying it's amazing to me how many Christians have allowed some of these ancillary issues to be used to prevent them from doing what's right. Which is, as far as I can see, Gathering to worship God together. Worshiping God through singing and song. By the way, these aren't options. This is what we're commanded to do. Receiving communion. Fellowshipping. Praying for one another. Oh, pastor, we can do all that online. No, you can't. You can't. These are things. You know the word church is ecclesia in the Greek. You know what it actually literally means? Gathering. Don't tell me you, you, you can gather. Now, listen, we understand that's the only option for some people. We understand. I've already addressed that. But listen, again, I'm not going to be liked for saying this. But if they're not coming anyway, then, well, well, what can I tell you? I'm not trying to offend anybody. But if you're letting anything other than the Holy Spirit keep you away from what God's will is, right, and God's Spirit wouldn't do that, then can I call you out as a pastor? Should I call you? I thought the word of God was given for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You see, it's my responsibility to do that. I'm, I'm now clear. I have a clear conscience before God because I've said what needed to be said. Listen, Peter was not going to be intimidated. John was not going to be intimidated. Look what it says in verse 13. When they saw the courage. Oh, what a lost character trait in our world today. Remember, Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Where are the men and women who stood up for what they believed in, according to God's word today? 
Oh, it says here, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Why don't we let the work of God silence our enemies? There's nothing they can say when God works. Don't let the enemy silence you and and stop the work of God. The Sanhedrin was astonished by the courage of men that they saw inferior to themselves. Peter and John were simple, ordinary men, fishermen, that had not received any formal education. They could have been Calvary Chapel pastors. So many of the people that God has used in the Calvary Chapel movement are people who don't have seminary degrees or any formal training. I'm among them. I was trained as a musician. I studied music in school, and then I went into IT. And, you know, I've I've been involved in ministry 35-something years, but you know what? Never went to seminary. Never went to Bible college. Okay, maybe I shouldn't be up here. I always like to tell people, if you think God hasn't called me, then you don't come. And if you don't think I know what I'm talking about, well, I get it. Okay, find somebody else to listen to. But here's what I do know. I'm where God has called me to be, and I am an ordinary and unschooled man. Maybe we have some here today who are ordinary and unschooled. You're thinking, how's God going to use me? How's he going to use you? He's going to fill you with the Spirit. And then it won't matter what you say because you won't be saying it. Well, Peter and John, simple, ordinary men, they attributed their boldness, that is their enemies, attributed their boldness and their understanding of Scripture to their time spent with Jesus. The only conclusion that the enemies of the gospel could come to is these men must have been spending time with Jesus. May that be what others say about us. Well, he didn't go to school, he doesn't have an advanced degree, nobody's special. Must have been hanging out with Jesus. And by the way, that's the only true qualification for a minister of the gospel. Spend time with Jesus. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Okay, let's move on. The influence of Jesus in and through the lives of these men was obvious to the Sanhedrin. Right? It was obvious. They figured it out. But the Sanhedrin were silenced. Why? Because the man who was healed was standing right there. You can't argue with fact. Oh, well, today, now they just come up with alternative facts. And you know what I've noticed? Revisionist history. It's amazing how all the protests last year were peaceful. Have you figured out that when they don't like the truth, they just change the truth into a lie? And you know what's crazy? Half of this country actually says, yeah, no, that's true, that's true, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. See, you better be careful because God is going to send a strong delusion. I think, he's, I think it's already happening. Where those that reject the gospel believe the lie. How could they believe that? Because they don't have Christ. They're taken captive by the devil's will. The roaring lion has swallowed them whole and spit them out. And we're surprised that they believe some of this nonsense. Don't be surprised. Listen, I'm just trying to share with you my heart today. Don't be silenced. Don't allow yourself to be silenced. They recognized this man as the crippled beggar. He used to sit at the temple gate, and they're amazed because this man had clearly been miraculously healed. Nothing they could say about that. So the Sanhedrin, what do they do? Well, they're in a quandary. They have no law they can really use against these men. They're obviously not going to be intimidated. So they ordered them to, be, uh, to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. 
and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle. See, that's what happens when the church doesn't back down. God does outstanding miracles. And then even the enemies of the cross have to say, well, we're going to have to get them on something other than the miracle because the miracle really happened. So they knew that they had done an outstanding miracle. And we cannot deny it. We cannot deny it. I love that. These men would have loved to have denied it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further, like a virus, among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. We'll just warn them. We'll intimidate them. We'll tell them they're canceled if they don't do what we want them to do. Okay. The devil hasn't changed his tactics in the least. And the church has to be willing to say, oh, no, no, no. Look at this outstanding miracle. I'm willing to stand up to you and tell you the truth in love. And my life is an outstanding miracle in God's hands. You can't deny that, and I will not be silenced. So come visit me in prison. No, I'm not even worried about that. I'm joking. I'm not even worried about that. Because these men weren't worried about it either. Well, first of all, the Sanhedrin confirmed these men had done an outstanding miracle. They couldn't deny it. But they were still determined to silence them in order to stop them from spreading the gospel. You see, that's the whole point of what we're experiencing right now. And when the church says, oh, no, 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 we we can't possibly open. No, 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 no. We can't possibly say anything controversial on YouTube. They might take us off. They might permanently ban us from YouTube. I'm waiting for that to happen. So what? The gospel was around a long time before social media, and it'll be here a long time after it. So, here's what I know. The Sanhedrin commanded Peter and John not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Don't preach. Don't teach. Not in the name of Jesus. It's, it's amazing because I think if we shared anything other than the gospel, they'd probably be okay with it because it's the truth and it brings outstanding miracles in our lives. They don't want to hear it. They, don't, they want to silence it. I don't want to go conspiracy theory on you, but boy, oh boy, it is amazing how we have been the target of the world during this time of crisis in our world. Why is that? Well, then they called them in again. And commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, verse 18. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourself. Judge for yourselves. Your judges, judge for yourself. Whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, we're not going to be quiet. We're not going to go quietly into the dark of night. It's not going to happen. Peter and John boldly refused to submit to the Sanhedrin or to be silenced by them. They were nice about it. But they challenged them to determine whether their authority superseded God's commands. And I think we all know that no authority on heaven or in heaven or on earth supersedes God's command for us as the church of Jesus Christ to worship together, to study his word, to fellowship, and to pray together. It's just that simple. See, these men were assuming authority that God had not given them. Peter and John wisely deferred to their authoritative judgment. In other words, you figure it out. We're not judges. You figure it out. But as far as us, we're going to do what God has called us to do. God had commanded them to preach the gospel, to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what they were going to do. Well, in verse 21, notice this. 
Well, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. That is, people had seen him around for a long time. Well, the Sanhedrin had no legitimate legal or authoritative response. They punted, which is what so many of our courts have done over this last year. When confronted with the legal challenges, the legitimate constitutional legal argument of churches and church groups and alliance, uh, you know, judicial alliances, what happened is they tried to run out the clock. And when finally some of these issues came to our Supreme Court, some of these things have been decided by one vote. But guess what? They could have said, you're not allowed to worship. And this guy would have been sitting right here on Sunday morning. We do not have an option to serve God. We cannot be silenced. We cannot stand down. We must stand. And we stand in Christ and by his power, and I have every confidence that if God has to do miracles that are undeniable in order to shut the mouths of lions, he will. In fact, I'm counting on it. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you as I ask the worship team to come up. All they could do was issue further threats of political intimidation and then release them. Do you realize all they can do is say mean things about you? Oh, you know what? They might even put you in prison. These aren't my words, by the way. These are Jesus' words. But where did Jesus ever say, listen, if they tell you you can't go to church, you might want to just comply? Where did he ever say, if they tell you you can't preach the gospel, or they say all manner of evil against you, or persecute you, or throw you in prison, just get with the program? I don't think so. He even said that the world would put some of us to death. But nowhere do I see a place in Scripture where we're told to be quiet with the truth. So don't tell me you shouldn't be in church. Unless God has shown you it's the wise thing for you individually to do. Because God's word tells us we should not forsake the gathering of ourselves. And I commend all of you here today. Because I look around and I've seen you, many of you I've seen all year. And some of you more recently, we're so glad you're here. And this isn't a guilt fest. This isn't some kind of shame I'm putting on people who aren't here. This is the word of God being used to rebuke, lovingly rebuke some of you who need to be here. That is those who are listening online. We miss you. We want you back. Ask God what he wants you to do because ultimately that's who you need to obey. As it says here, what does he say? Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey anyone else rather than God. Listen, all they could do was issue threats. They couldn't even punish them because their actions had led to all the people praising God. How are you going to punish people for doing something that caused everyone to praise God, when these are the guys in charge of getting people to praise God. They had performed an outstanding miracle by healing a man who had been crippled from birth. Forty years, his entire life, this man is now over 40 years old, and he's walking and he's jumping. See, Jesus and his disciples must have walked past this man many times at the temple gate. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus went to the temple. This man was at that, at that gate. Jesus didn't heal this man until this very moment through Peter and John. Why hadn't he done that? You see, that's our problem. We ask that question. Well, why didn't Jesus heal him? Well, he did in his time. 
God had allowed, even ordained this man to sit there at that temple gate just a little while longer until he could be healed at this moment for his purposes. See, Jesus has the power to heal and the authority to choose not to heal. May the Lord's will be done in and through our lives in his perfect timing and to his glory. Amen? Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and I know today is a little challenging and I may not be everyone's favorite person right now, but Lord God, I know that you have laid on my heart the desire to say these things from a heart of love as a pastor, as a shepherd. And Lord God, we pray that you'd give wisdom to your people. And not just for our congregation, because really, it's not that many people, but there are some that just need to be here, but there are perhaps millions, perhaps, I hope not, millions of Christians who aren't worshiping you publicly today and have no good reason for it. We pray for your boldness and your courage to be given to us as a church, that we might not be intimidated or silenced because you want to do outstanding miracles. And I believe one of the miracles is just keeping us healthy. But there's miracles of salvation and reaching the hearts of those that don't know you. Miracles and miraculous works of missions and outreach and ministry that need to take place that will be undeniable in their power. Lord, you will if we will. But you can't if we won't. Not through us. So we ask for boldness and courage upon our congregation. And for those that don't know you and they've come in here and they've heard this message that, that, that there's only one name under heaven by which you can be saved, I pray right now that everyone would know in their hearts that you died upon that cross for our sins. You rose again on the third day and are coming again to judge the living and the dead. And you said that if we believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, we confess with our mouths that God the Father raised him from the dead, will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved from their sin, forgiven and made right, born again of the Spirit of God, filled with your Spirit in order to be members of the body of Christ, the church, the family of God. And I pray that every heart would be surrendered to you today. And I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.